Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. So my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. I also want to make note, uh, if you feel led to give, you can give uh, in person here as you exit, uh, or you can give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. Online giving is a lovely thing. We give through that. It makes life so much simpler for me because I can't remember to write a check to save my life, just so we're on the same page. I know I'm dating myself. Please forgive me. Now, as we get into our passage today, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And I've titled this, God's Provision of Service. God's Provision of Service. As we look at this passage, we're going to see God providing uh, some service to His church. Uh, There becomes a need, and God makes this miraculous provision of providing men to step up, to lead, and to shepherd in a specific way. And as I begin to think about this, what do we experience this in our lives? How do we see this? I think that this moment is really a moment of a warning signal to the church. A sign to them of, hey, there is a problem and we must pay attention to it. I would liken it to a check engine light, right? Um, I've driven some terrible cars in my life and there are some vehicles when a check engine light comes on, you know, we need to get this figured out. There are other cars that you're just used to that glow and you put a little tape on it so you don't see it going off, Right. Um, when you see this check engine light, it's a warning of, hey, there's something you must pay attention to. This will be a problem if you don't resolve it. And that's what we see here in this section of Scripture. That if we don't see this moment of tension resolved, that we will see the church ultimately split and crumble. And so God provides service just as you would take your car to be serviced. God provides a very specific service, an upkeeping to the church, to ensure that this problem does not become a long-term problem. If you would, would you stand with me as we read the text, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramias, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Would you bow your heads and go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are thankful for you today, and we pray that as we look at this section of Scripture, that you would would teach us, that you would show us a model of a healthy church, That you would show us the ways we are to serve. That you will show us that you've appointed men to lead and shepherd the congregation. That you've called people forward to make disciples and in that process to be raised up as leaders. Father, I pray that we would look at this and allow this to be like a check engine light. That we would use this to measure our own hearts, to measure the health of our church. To measure how we're to live and walk in obedience to you, Lord. Father, we are thankful for you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. 
So as we begin here, we get, jump right into this passage of Scripture, and we see an immediate need come up in verses 1 and 2. I know we just read it, but look back at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in a daily distribution. And so right here, we begin this section with a need immediately. This is right after the second confrontation with the priests by the, the apostles. We've got this confrontation, and we see this time afterwards that the church is growing. That it says the disciples are continuing to increase in numbers, and things are going well until they stop going well. You see, at this point, we've encountered a problem in the life of the church. This isn't the first problem we've come up against in the book of Acts, but we've come up to a pretty significant moment. If you remember from earlier in the scriptures, the people in the church have been selling their possessions to help meet the needs of people in their midst. This is a free will offering that anybody can make. Uh, we remember back in chapter 5, right? We see Ananias and Sapphira condemned because of their unhealthy handling of this. We see Barnabas, just a few verses earlier, being praised for his willingness to sell what he had so that he could provide for those that are in need. A part of this is a daily distribution of food to those who are needy. So this is a real proactive provision and care for people. This is a direct meeting of the needs. Now it seems here as we read this verse that there are some widows of a different ethnic background who are being neglected. Now we've got to keep some context in here and understand what's actually being said right here. So first and foremost, we have to remember that the church is still primarily a Jewish Christian community at this point. This ethnic background they're talking about is not talking about Jews versus Gentiles. We haven't seen the Gentiles be brought into the church yet. That's later on in the book of Acts. What we see here is there is some tension between Jewish believers and there's some lines that are being divided in here. You see, these people, as they are all Jewish in their faith before becoming Christian believers, they come from different ethnic backgrounds. We would describe this as we come from different areas, regions within our country, right? Majority of us born and raised in the South. Others have been born and raised elsewhere, right? And we have different regional expectations. You know, I was speaking to Caleb about this just a few weeks ago, and Caleb is from up north. I won't tell you precisely where he's from. But one of the things that we found is that culturally there are different things within where he's from and within the South. Things that you wouldn't even assume would be different. They're vastly different. You see, we have different backgrounds, different experiences. And the church is made up of different people that have been brought together from all over. We see through the book of Acts that people are coming from all over to be healed and cared for. Now the text here indicates that the people that are having the problem are Greek Jews. Now what does that mean? These are Jews who are from an area in Greece, uh, in the Jewish dispersion that we see in the Old Testament. If you remember just a few weeks ago when Guy Smith preached from Jeremiah 29, that was talking about one of the Jewish dispersions. That was the Jews being sent out all over the world. And in that, they are to adopt some of the cultures and language to become people who live in this area. And so some of these people who have come back to Jerusalem are Greek Jews. They've adopted the Greek culture, they've adopted the Greek language, but they are Jewish believers. And so they've come back, and they are now in the midst of these Jewish worshipers. And now we have this tension, this neglect that's happening. So what, what is it? What is this neglect? 
Frankly, we're not really sure what it entails or even how it started. But we recognize that it's probably not an intentional thing. That as we are apt to do as people, we tend to associate with people who are like us, right? And what we have to recognize in this moment in the church is that it is a predominantly Jewish church, of course, but it's predominantly made up of Aramaic-speaking believers. So they speak a different language. These believers who are being neglected speak Greek, while the others speak Aramaic. There's a language barrier. There's a disconnect. The apostles are perhaps a great example of this, of the Aramaic speakers. And it's fair to assume that many of the believers have the same background. Now, within that, that creates just a distance. Let's be very honest with one another, right? If you don't speak a language and you encounter someone who's speaking a different language, do you go out of your way to interact with them? No, you don't. In fact, it seems like you tend to actively avoid people who don't speak your language. It's human instinct that we want to associate with those who are like us, who speak the same way, who connect with us in the same way. It's far easier to connect with someone who has similar interests than to try and bridge a language gap. And so we have this natural moment of the church encountering this tension, this division amongst this language barrier. Now we might look at this and say, well, this isn't really a big deal, right? Yet it's become a huge deal in the life of the church. You see, it's a huge deal because it directly affects the witness of the church. Because throughout the Old Testament, we see that in the Old Testament, the care of widows and orphans is a crucial ministry of the nation of Israel. That consistently, God tells the people that you are to make provision for the widows and orphans. You're to care for those who are in lesser position than you. We see that echoed throughout the New Testament. You know, we, we, we recognize that that's a common theme throughout the Scriptures. But here's the problem with it. Is that the people who are in Israel will look upon the church and say, you are no better than us because we're neglecting the widows and orphans and so are you. We are, you're no better than us because there are people who look and act different than you and you're going to say that you're not going to care and provide for them just like we would. You see, this is coming off the heels of the priest telling them that you're to stop living and acting in this way that Jesus called you to live. And now we have them in a direct situation that has put them in opposition with the words of Christ. So it's a big deal. It's directly affecting the witness and ministry of the church. And rightly, the apostles recognize that. Rightly, they say, this is an issue that we must address and deal with. Now, how do they deal with it? Well, verse 2 tells us, The twelve apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to, of God to serve tables. So they recognize that there's this problem. And so they bring the church together. And I think it's important for us to note here is that the seriousness to which they're taking this problem you see, there is just one group of people that had an issue in the midst of the church right now. And it's the Hellenists. It's the Greek-speaking Jews. They are a minority in this church. There are very few of them. Yet the church behaves as if this group of people, their problem is now our problem. You see, there's something here to be said about the community of God embracing one another's burdens. Bearing one another's burdens. 
That in doing so, we provide a greater gospel witness of what God is doing in our midst. That if we're able to callously say, well, that's your problem and I'm not going to deal with that. What does that say about the love of Christ? What does that say about the character of our God? But if we are to say that you have problems right now, and because I love you and care for you, your problems are now going to be my problems, and we're going to deal with it, we're going to wrestle with it, we're going to bear the weight of this, and we're going to go through this together, that's a different picture of the love of Christ, of the power of the gospel, of the character of the church. And so the apostles have called the church together because they've recognized that if there's one group of people within our congregation that has a problem, we all have a problem. So now we need to deal with it. Now we've got to talk about the apostles at this point because it seems that some things are changing. There's some structure happening within the life of the church. We recognize that the apostles were the spiritual leaders of the congregation of the church, that they were the ones who shepherded, who proclaimed the word, who they were discipling the people. Very practically to this point, they've been doing all the administration work as well. They've been overseeing the community funds that have been donated to the church. They've been taking care of this ministry of providing food and sustenance and other resources to those who are in need. Very practically, they're busy people. Yet they recognize they've got a responsibility to solve this problem for the sake of the witness of the church. So their response is to make a bold decision to focus on the priority of preaching and prayer. We need to think about this decision and and the language that's used here for a moment because I think it's telling about who we are as a church, who we're to be as a church, what that means for us as believers. I want to make sure we are clear about what they're not saying. They are not saying that caring for widows and orphans is not a priority. They're not saying we're not going to do this, we don't care about these people. No, no, no. They're saying that it's not the priority for these men. You've got to remember who the apostles are at this point. You see, these guys are the key witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They are the guys who have the power and ability to stand before people with confidence, with a reputation to say, Jesus sits on the throne. You can go find this empty tomb and he is not in there because he is risen and sitting on the throne, ruling over you and I. You see, to pull them away from this task of proclaiming this message of a resurrected Savior would be devastating to the overall ministry of the church. That it would be insane. In fact, this statement, they say that it would not be right. It would not be right can actually be translated as not pleasing in God's eyes. You see, the apostles recognize something. They recognize that their task is to do what no one else can do, and that is proclaim of the risen Savior as an eyewitness to his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so they've made this statement to say, God has called us to do this, and he's going to need to call some other people to do that. So they've made this decision, and we've got to... Ask the question, what's the next step? What do we do? 
How do we move forward from here? Well, the next section, they provide us with the solution. You see, they show us precisely what it is they're going to do. Look at verse 3. The apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So as we've read here, the apostles determined that there is a better way for the church to be served. There's a better way for the church to have its needs met, to provide for those who are in need, and allow them to continue to proclaim the good news of a resurrected Savior. And so they simply asked the gathered body, the gathered church of Israel, to select seven men to care for the tables and to serve all the widows and orphans of the church. Now, we need to focus in on some of the key things here. We need to recognize what's happening. And I think one of the key things we need to look at is the qualifications of these men. You see, they're not just leaving this up to chance. They're not just leaving this up to anybody to step into this role. They're very clear about the type of person they're looking for. You see, the men who are selected are the early examples of deacons. They don't go by that term yet in this section of Scripture. We don't see deacons used here. Yet their role and their qualifications are exactly the same as we see used later on in the New Testament. That while these aren't referred to as deacons, this is where we get the idea of who deacons are and what it is they do from this section of Scripture. So what are the qualifications here? What is it that God's Word says we're looking for when we're saying that we need people to lead and to serve? Well, the first thing that the disciples say is that these should be men of good repute. That this means that they must have a good reputation inside and outside the church. It's that phrase we see in 1 Timothy 3, above reproach. What they are pointing to here is that we want people to come into this role who have good character. To be clear, the apostles are telling us that character matters. It matters more that people know you have good character. This is not to be done by your proclaiming to the world, Hey, I'm a great person, but rather people are to look into your life and to say that you're someone who exemplifies good conduct, and character. You see, it's important to note that these people they're selecting, these people are to be examples to the congregation of how to live and to serve. They only want the best from in their midst to take up this mantle of service. They're only looking for the best, most qualified people. And so we must not gloss over this reality that character matters. We're looking for people to serve who have good character. The second qualification they give is that you must be full of the Spirit. Now, what, what does that mean, right? You see, this means that they are to be known to allow the Spirit to work in them. 
They're people who live in fear of the Lord. Very practically, what does that look like? This means that they hear the Word of God, and then they obey the Word of God. I want to be clear that let's repeat that again, because this is a crucial part of the qualifications. They hear the Word of God, and then they obey the Word of God. We're not talking about perfection here, right? We're not looking for perfect people. But rather, we're looking for people who are consistently serving and following Jesus, a long obedience in the same direction after Jesus. That we're looking for people who will hear the Word of God and say that when my heart, when my life doesn't line up with that, I will repent and change my heart and my actions. The last qualification they give is that they should be full of wisdom. Many commentators, as I was looking at this, suggest that this is pointing to both godly and to practical wisdom. Very clearly, they likely needed practical wisdom to provide for proper management of these funds, right? There's a lot of money, a lot of needs to be met. You don't put someone in charge of a lot of money who has no experience with money. You don't put someone in charge of a lot of money who is bad with money. You have to put people in charge of things that have the ability to do these things. So they're pointing to practical wisdom that if you're going to appoint people to these tasks, they have to have some actual skills and ability to do them. Yet they're also pointing to godly wisdom so that these men can provide proper care and support to the congregation and to the apostles. Proper care and support to the congregation, to the apostles. Here's the reality of this. You're not going to go to a doctor who failed out of med school. Right? That's not the doctor you're looking for. You don't want to go to a deacon for advice and counsel if they're not men of the Lord. If they're not studying the word. You don't want a pastor preaching and teaching if they don't know the Bible. And so the apostles are setting a high bar here saying, we want men to serve in this role who have godly character, who listen and obey to God's word, and then lead and shepherd from God's word. It will be very clear that this is who we're looking for. Now, it's important to note as you look at that and you think, well, that's great, but I'm not a deacon, right? What, what does this have to do with me? Well, these are listed as qualifications for those who are desiring to be deacons, but it's important to note that the reality of this is that these are baseline qualifications for anyone who's a part of the church. You see, what we see here is the truth is that these should be exemplified in a deacon as an example to the congregation but every man, woman, and child who's a faithful believer, a part of a local church, this is who you're supposed to be. That this is who you're called to be. And just simply put, as, as a personal note, as we're looking at this, I need you to wrestle with this. I just need you to ask this question. Can these things be said about you and your life? Are you someone that people look upon and say, you have godly character? Are you someone that people look upon and say, this is someone who listens and obeys 
the word of the Lord. This is someone who I'm going to come to because they give God-honoring wisdom. I would suggest that if you would say that your life doesn't exemplify these things, if these aren't traits you see in your own heart, I think that this issue is rooted in hearing and obeying God's word. Very clearly, that if you are not studying the Bible, you are never going to display these qualifications. That if you're not studying the Bible, you will never grow and thrive as a believer. If you're not studying the Bible, you will not persevere in your faith. Very simply, very clearly, studying Scripture is at the root of what it means to persist in the Christian life. That if you're saying, I'm struggling with prayer, I'm struggling with anything else in my life, studying the Bible is the answer. Looking at the Word of God, listening and obeying to it, it is crucial to the Christian life. It's not enough to merely do that on Sundays and to hear the Word of God from the pulpit, but rather on a daily basis encounter the living and active Word of God. Very clearly, if you're not studying the Bible, I'll say this now, deacons, if you're not in the Word, you're not going to be a deacon for long. Leaders in our congregation, if you're not studying the Word, you will not be a leader in our congregation for long. Pastors, Brian and I, if we are not in the Word, we will not be your pastors for long. It is a significant, crucial thing for us to remember that studying the Scriptures at the root of everything we do as believers. The apostles believe that. The apostles believe that because they tell us in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Appoint these men of good godly character who love the Lord, who will serve faithfully, and we will keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You say they know that we're going to devote ourselves to this ministry. They're making it clear that they have a task of greater priority that only they can do. Again, I need to stress that caring for the widows and orphans is important. It is a priority. But the priority is ensuring that people have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel message about Jesus. See, this is one of the things that our deacons do so well here. They're a part of the frontline care that this church receives in addition to providing support for the pastors. This is why each of you are assigned a deacon, right? They are able and willing to provide care and wisdom for you on a day-to-day basis. This is a supplement to anything that you receive from Brian and I. But we intentionally put these men who love the Lord, who have good character, who offer godly wisdom in position with you so that you always have care and support. You see, it's a simple recognition of the reality that as pastors, Brian and I have other priorities than only we can do. I'm standing up here preaching, maybe mediocrely, maybe okay, you can tell me what you think later, 
But not many people have the ability to preach and teach. You see, as Ed said last week, the job of a deacon is to make things easier for the pastors. This is something that our men do a tremendous job of, and we are grateful for their work and their labor in this. Now, the congregations heard the apostles speak, and this seems to be pleasing to them, so they select seven men from the congregation to serve in this role. It's interesting as we look at this that all of these people they select, they're Hellenists. They're Greek Jews. We know that because their names are all Greek names. That These are all Greek believers who are going to be caring for the entire congregation. Now we don't know a lot about these men, quite simply. Stephen's going to become kind of the primary character in the next section of Scripture. Stephen's going to be pretty significant to the story in the next few verses. Philip appears in Acts 8, and we're going to see him uh, do something in terms of sharing the gospel, kind of taking it from the first step, from the Jewish church into the Gentile world. We don't really know too much about the other five from history. But as we look at this, the early church said, these are the men that God has provided to serve us. You see, this section, verse 6, ends with, an installation service for these men in their new role. It's important as we look at this to recognize that they're not doing an ordination service as we are going to do today. They're not doing that. They're doing something a little different. We can't read our modern understanding into this. Yet, it's quite similar to this in that they are vesting personal responsibility on these men. You see, in the Old Testament, as we look at the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, this idea of laying on of hands carries a connotation of me offering personal responsibility to someone. That this is me as a leader passing off responsibility to someone. We see that throughout the Old Testament, used in that way with Moses to Joshua and other figures. They place their hands upon them and say, this is me publicly affirming before the congregation of Israel that I have vested you with power and authority, responsibility to complete this task. And so they are standing before the gathered church and they're saying to the entire congregation, these men are going to provide for your needs. These men are going to care for you. These men are going to shepherd you. These men have responsibility, power, and authority to complete this task. You see, even today, we're going to borrow an element of that for our deacons. That as we go through this covenant ceremony of an ordination, we're going to ask that you'll raise your hand just from where you're at. As we pray over them, and this is us acknowledging as a faith family that we are giving you this responsibility. That we are saying before the Lord and before everyone who has gathered today that this is the task that this church, that the Lord has appointed to you. Luke has one last verse for us to look at. He shows us the result of these things. Verse 7, the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the result here is that the word 
of God increases. It spreads. The disciples are multiplying, even more so than perhaps they have in earlier sections. We see that this multiplication, this growth of the church is becoming so outrageous that even priests within the temple are now coming to faith. See, the ESV says a great many of the priests. The NIV says most of the priests. What that tells us is that we know this from just archaeological study, that in this time about 8,000 priests were serving in the temple. And from looking at this section of Scripture, that many of those men, most of those men, according to the NIV, followed Jesus after this day. You see, God uses this moment to provide for His church to grow and to thrive. Why? Because they kept their priority, they kept their focus on the gospel message of Jesus. You see, in this moment, it would have been very easy for the church to say, well, our priority has to be that we care for these widows, and so the apostles must give all of their time, effort, and energy towards this task. It would have been very easy for the church to say, well, this is just a small group of people. It's not a big deal. Let's ignore it. It would have been very easy for the church to take a wrong turn here and go into, with good intentions, perhaps, into dangerous territory. But to do anything like that would have taken their eye off the prize, and that is Jesus sitting on the throne. You see, what we see here is that clinging to the gospel as the top priority is not only going to protect the unity of the church, but will lead it to greater heights in ministry. You see, clinging to the gospel as our top priority, as individual believers, as a local church, will see us grow and thrive in the Lord. That's evident from this passage that even those who are enemies of God now would become a part of the family. As we look at this, you might wonder, what, what, is, what is my response to this, right? What is my response to th- this entire section of Scripture? Well, I think as we look at this, I think we have to recognize that in this section of Scripture, we see a great deal made of service, of serving, of caring for those who are in need. And I would say that the reason that that is evident is because service is at its core a central part of the gospel. That service is the very nature of what the gospel is. You see, as we look at the scriptures, we recognize that before we were even born, as we were just a child being knitted and formed in our mother's womb, God knew us. God provided for us. That care and provision didn't end when we escape the womb, but rather it continues throughout our entire lives. The scriptures tell us that if God knows the number of flowers that are in a field, the number of hairs that are on your head, how much more that he provides for those, how much more will he provide for you and care for you? You see, that provision is evident throughout scripture and throughout all of life. Even the gospel itself carries that. Because Jesus came to serve. That he left heaven, descended to earth, lived a perfect holy life that you and I could not live. That he went to the cross, an innocent man, bearing the weight of sin and shame from our life. And taking a death that we deserved. So that if 
we place our faith in him, we might have life eternal. We might have forgiveness. That we could have Jesus. That even as we pray throughout the day we're here, the Spirit of God is serving by moving in our hearts and minds, revealing our sin, showing us where we fall short of the Word of the Lord, leading us to repentance and confession. You see, the very root of the gospel is service. And so if you're hearing this and you're saying, well, what must my response be? Well, if you're here as a follower of Christ, then your response is to commit to serve. Commit to give of yourself however much you have so that you might see the gospel go forth and change lives just as your life has been changed. That if you're here and you're not a believer, then what your response today is to not try and serve, not try to earn, but to simply freely receive the free gift of grace that comes from Christ Jesus. To simply be served today. And all that it takes to receive that service, that care, that provision, is to look to God, to look to Jesus, and to cry out for forgiveness and mercy. And so today, we have opportunity to both serve and to be served. And so here in the next few minutes, I'm going to pray. And this will be an opportunity for you to go to the Lord, to confess your sins, to ask Him to give you ways to serve, to empower you to serve. Perhaps you're here and you say, today is the day that I need to be served by the Lord. And so you have an opportunity to cry out to Him and say, forgive me, Lord. That here in the next few moments, this is your chance. After that, we will begin our deacon ordination and we'll have a time of praying over these men and celebrating what God is doing in our life to covenant together as a body that we are going to walk in a very specific way with these men. And then we'll close with the Lord's Supper and a song celebrating, a fitting song, I think, singing, I Surrender All. That we're giving it all before the Lord. We're putting it all on the table and saying, My life is yours, God. Do what you will. But it all begins with prayer. And so if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful for the grace and mercy you have provided us. We're thankful for your desire to serve your children. And Father, it is that that we are crying out to you regarding. Lord, would you give us a desire to serve? That however we might be able to serve, whether it's through physical gifts Perhaps it's just simply through spiritual contributions of prayer and support, encouragement. Maybe it's through financial support. Whatever it may be, Lord, 
I pray that you call every single person here to serve abundantly in some way. And Lord, I recognize that perhaps there are some people here who are watching online whom they have not yet been served. That they've not received this free gift of grace from you, Lord. And Father, it is my hope and my prayer that they would experience the power of the gospel, of trusting in the resurrection of Jesus, receiving this service, Lord, repenting of their sins, and calling out to you as their Father. Lord, today is indeed about service, and that is so central to the gospel message, Father. May we never forget that you, Lord, came to serve us when we were your enemies, when we were lost in sinfulness and fleshly desires, you came to find your children who were in rebellion. That even while we were still sinners, you died for us so that we might have life and forgiveness through you. Lord, we can't fathom a love like that because it is just so otherworldly. But Father, may you convict us of this love. May you show us the power and beauty that is found in the gospel message of Jesus. And may you lead us to repentance. Father, we are thankful for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.